The Nate the Voluntarius Livestream, episode 154. What is up, everybody? It is Nate the Voluntarist, and today we have a great show for you. I have brought back a special guest uh, making his second appearance. He is a uh, patent attorney and one of the greatest libertarian theorists out there, and that would be Stefan Kinsella. So, Stefan, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Uh, and I'm joining... Joining in the uh, conversation is Zach the Agorist and Hello. Night Shift 10,000. What's up? So uh, today I thought uh, we uh, discuss uh, argumentation ethics. Uh, that one has mm. barely been discussed on my show. Um, I mean, I've done a, uh, a uh, special on Hoppianism uh, with a fellow YouTuber uh, named Hoplu. Uh, we briefly discussed argumentation ethics, though probably not uh, in depth as I would have wanted to. But um, knowing that Stefan uh, is a proponent of it, uh, I thought uh, he could uh, like give sort of an introduction into what it is, and uh, you know, hopefully there will be a discussion. So, uh... Uh, would you like me to? Uh... Yeah, sure. Take the lead? Yeah, sure. Go for it. Well, I, I uh, let me ask a question. Would everyone here uh, describe themselves – I know you just use different words like voluntarist, but as a libertarian. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. And so to me, the word libertarian, um, I'm being – ecumenical and open-minded it's a broad term it means i don't uh, i have trouble including classical liberals like uh, but okay you can even broaden the tent there but basically it's minarchist and anarchist that's how i describe it right people believe in a minimal state which has different names the uh the night watchman state the the minimalist state the you know ultra minimal state as per nozick um, and by the way, most people I think think Nozick was an anarchist, but he wasn't. Um, uh, he wrote that book, Anarchy, State, and Utopia. But anyway, um, and then you have the anarch anarchist libertarians, right? Um, so libertarians basically believe in a strong, effective set of individual human rights, which either radically limits or completely stuffs out the state's the state's role right so it limits the state to a small role or limited radical role or means the state is totally illegitimate that's how i think of libertarianism and i'm being generous here because because i'm a consistent anarchist libertarian and uh, honestly in a sense i don't really regard minarchists as true libertarians but they're you know they're trying they're grasping but whatever but the essence is that we believe in some kind of rights, even if people that don't like to use the word rights because they don't have the mental, the mental uh, uh, equipment to, to talk in these terms 
or they they're the kind of hippies that say I don't like labels, man, or whatever, or I just like pragmatic, utilitarian, consequentialist, you know, reasoning, whatever works, man. You know, you you hear all these kind of people, right? But whether they like to admit it or not, if you believe in any kind of principled uh, opposition to syst systematic oppression of human liberty and rights and freedom, you're effectively advancing some view of rights, right? Some view of rights. Now, a right is a legally or societally recognized claim to a certain control of a, a scarce resource, okay? Primarily including your body, right? That's why we're against slavery because we think people should be self-owners. If there's a human body out there, it's a physical resource. Who should own it? The person himself controlling it or some some master, right? So we're against slavery because we're for self-ownership. Now, people don't like to think of it that way because they're against capitalism and commoditization and blah, 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 all this kind of boring bullshit. Um, but basically, whether they like it or not, most people, their instincts, their natural intuitions, their societal impulses, their civilized impulses, they believe in some implicit, at least implicit theory of rights. And as Rothbard in The Ethics of Liberty pointed out, all rights are property rights. So they basically believe – everyone believes in some implicit theory of legal property rights, which really just means in the end… Who do we think should have control of a resource? Like if there's a dispute between you and me over this thing, whether it's my body, if you want to rape me, or if it's my watch, if you want to take it, or if it's my money, if you want to tax me, or whatever, the question is always uh, an actual dispute between contestants over a resource, and if we're going to solve this in a civilized way, we appeal to some tribunal or some forum or some reason, and we make an argument, and we have a reason for who gets to control what. Right. So that's what society is. That's what laws are. That's what rules are. It's all about property rights and rules. Okay. Now, people don't like to talk about it this way because it's they, they say it's reductionist or it's anti-human or it takes the emotion out of it. Blah blah blah. I'm so sick of hearing this crap from New Age California types, you know, hippies yes, and thank you. whatever. <laughs> I'm so sick of it because they're all doing the same. Everyone's doing the same thing. We're all. If you have a dispute, it's always over a resource. So the question comes down to who has the right to use force to determine the issue, right? Um, now. We libertarians have a perspective, and I think we share a certain perspective even if we don't like to label it this way because it, it, it denies us our hippie creds. But we basically come down on the Lockean side of things, and we say that, listen, here's the rules we, we support. We support the rules that the way you determine who owns a resource is you ask who had it first or who contractually gave it to someone else. It's pretty clear. A couple of other nuances, but that's that's basically it. Who had it first and contract. Consent, contract, first use. Um, Locke um, and some of these early guys. Um, 
and you'll notice that every time someone deviates from this, they always want to find a rule that allows you to take something from someone that had it because of one of these rules and give it to someone else, which I view and libertarians in my view should view as you know, a redistribution of wealth or, or stealing as we call it. So then the question becomes how do we articulate these rules that we all agree on or that emerge from the earlier norms that we all basically agree on, which is what argumentation ethics gets at, which I'll get to in a second. Um, so but then the question becomes okay. How do we articulate, how do we define, and how do we justify these norms, these rules? Right? I don't really see how anyone can engage in an argument or conversation or discourse about this without admitting that that's what it's about at least. You have to admit that that's what we're talking about. We're talking about what the rules should be, right? what the legal rules should be, what the property rights should be, what property rights are justifiable. So that's uh, everyone agree with me on this, or is there any dispute on that part so far? I don't know. It seems pretty straightforward to me. Yeah, really. I know. And sometimes when you say things over and over and over and over and over again, and they seem elementary at a certain point, but you know, um, sometimes things that are obvious to later generations are not so obvious to the ones before. But that's the basic playing field we enter onto. And by the way, lots of socialists and communists and New Agers and hippies wouldn't agree with that framing. They would disagree with the framing because it's a framing. Because it it look, you can disagree with my definitions, my semantics, with my elocution, whatever, but I'm at least putting it out there like Here's what I'm saying, and we can agree or disagree on that. Some people don't even like that, right? They don't like to have it concrete and and concretized where you can say yes or no to it or something like that. This is the frustrating thing with lots of people. Um, so in political philosophy, in history, uh, in philosophy itself, and in let's say libertarian philosophy, Philosophy. Let's say, uh, I, in my personal view, I would I would define and characterize libertarianism as having emerged in the 50s and 60s in the U.S. That's the way it happened. Now, there's progenitors. There's classical liberalism, the old right, um, even older traditions. Uh, but basically, modern libertarian thinking started in the 50s. Excuse me, in '60s in the U.S. Uh, with Ayn Rand and Leonard Reed and Milton Friedman and later Murray Rothbard and and also Mises and these kind of guys. Um, it has the movement has expanded and uh, and changed. In a way, it's become better. In a way, it's become worse. In my view, um, it's become better in the sense that there are more there are more of us now. Because of Ron Paul and the movement and things like this, and the spread of Austrian economics and the Mises Institute, things like that. Um, so there are more of us, and I believe more of us are radical than before. That is, more willing to be the anarchist rather than the minarchist side. However, I do think that in the early days there was a smaller number, and they were 
probably not as radical, but they were more intellectual and more um, well-read, and plus there was less to read back then. Um, nowadays, they, they learn from the internet and from movements and political um, activism, and um, so I don't know. There's good and bad in the, in the flourishing of the movement. I don't know what you guys – what do you guys think about that, that little point? This is my 55-year-old per, uh, perspective on the movement I've seen change over the last 30 years. I'd say it's good, but now we've gotten to the situation where no one knows what real libertarianism is. And, of course, you see on Twitter everyone's fighting about that. Yeah. Yeah, you're not a real libertarian, dude. No, you're not a real libertarian. Yeah, it's yeah, really, that's the way it sounds. It, it's really, it's really uh, frustrating for me. I, I think I share the same frustration with you, Stefan. You know, I keep running into a lot of idiot minarchist and cap and agorist types that are just supporting crap, basically. And I just, I'm just like. Just shut up for crying out loud. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> you have no idea what you're talking about on this. You're you're you you obviously haven't done the research. Plus and and I even try to, you know, share them some links, you know, you ought to take a look at this, you know, and expand your research into wherever it will lead you to and you know just uh, you know, spend some time with it, you know, uh, thinking it over and they're just not willing to do that, which is which is really frustrating. They're they're and they're trying to say I'm being dismissive, I'm being unfair, blah 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 blah, which is incredibly annoying. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, so. yeah, I mean, I, I've noticed something. Look, I wouldn't spend all this time like doing these things for free and all these tens of thousands of hours. Uh, debating, arguing, refining my own arguments, you know, uh, whatever. Um, yeah. If I didn't love the movement and love the people and have a fondness for the whole thing, but uh, yeah, it's it's frustrating to see, you know, someone emails you or they'll text you like, "Hey, could you tell me the best thing to read on A, B, and C?" And that's okay, that's fine. I mean, lots of scholars that you respect and admire and learn from are dead and you can't email them. So you have to do it on your own or they don't respond, but that's okay if I have time, but you know, we do have Google and the internet. Now I don't understand these young kids that are, they want you to give them a reading list. And then when you give them a reading list, of course they don't usually read it. Right. Mm -hmm. So sometimes like on Facebook, you know, if you have a debate and people, People want to reinvent the wheel all the time, and that that's of course fine, and that's good too. Everyone's got to discover things for themselves. But they'll ask a question, and they'll happen to have an expert or someone who actually knows a deep section of the literature. You know, and I'll give them one or two or three links. Like, okay, go read this blog post. Like, it's just a blog post, not even a long article. Like, I already dealt with this exact topic like 17 years ago. I'm not saying it's perfect or up to date, but at least go look there and go see where it takes you and whatever. And of course, they never do. They just go to the next Twitter post because this is the modern era. Instant gratification, people want to be served up, knowledge, etc. But let's get back to argumentation ethics. So mm -hmm. the question emerges among some people that are somewhat serious about thinking in a principle terms about 
all of what we think about and what we do, right, which is the systematic order of some kind of society that respects some version of liberty. I mean our word is libertarian, so liberty or freedom or what you can say rights. Now, I think it all boils down to individual rights or property rights, but then the question is what are the rights and what should they be? And everyone tends to converge more or less on the same rough ideas. People own their bodies. They own themselves. We shouldn't have slavery. You shouldn't murder people. You shouldn't rape people. You shouldn't rob people. People should have property rights respected. So we all agree on those basic higher-level um, norms, political norms or legal norms. But then the question is why or how do we justify them? And then you have all the people de debate endlessly about – Consequentialism, utilitarianism, pragmatism, deontological stuff, philosophical, Aristotelianism, like all these different approaches to everything, right? Now, my view is we all live in the same reality and we all have some shared goals. So it's not some shared norms, that is some shared values, which Hans Kelsen, a famous legal theorist, called Grun norms or or ground norms, or basic norms, things at the bottom, right? And I'll, I'll, I'll tie that up in a second, Your Honor. Um, <laughs> but the, the question emerges, how do we know what to do? How do we know what laws to have? How do we know what's just in doing in response to an act of violence or something that we don't like, right? And so people think about these things, and they think about them because they're decent and civilized, and they don't want to just haul off and do the wrong thing. You don't want to you know, find a guy running across your lawn, and you shoot him and kill him, and then later you get regretted. I mean you know, people by and large want to do the right thing, but they want to do the right thing for themselves but also for society because we have a mix of… A self-interest and also empathy, and you know, and I'm not saying like an anti-Randian freak that empathy is anti-self-interest, but you know, you can analytically distinguish it. You know, we have empathy for others because we're socially we're social creatures, and we of course have self-interest for ourselves and our families and the things we hold dear. Yeah. So this is why it works and how it works. This is why we have a free market. This is why we have a catalectics, as Mises called it, uh, a market economy, a money economy, and trade, and the division of labor, and all these things. Right. So some people say things like, well – so they, they basically – because there's a remnant of religiosity, I believe, and mysticism and tribalism and, and primitivism in society… In other words, we came out of the trees too goddamn soon. Um, uh, they're going to attach or morph belief in God and the gods into – and attach it to the state basically or some proto-version of the state or the modern state. And so they will – that will morph into what we have now, which I, I call legal, legal positivism. Like So laws come from the sovereign. They're a grant or an issuance from some sovereign lawgiver, which because we worship democracy now is 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 the people 
as voiced through some committee of bureaucrats who have seized power, right? Um, or you have people that rely upon this old-fashioned sort of a reason like what does human nature require? Like not, so we call that natural law or natural rights or natural right as some people will say, which is a, which is a philosophical distinction. Um, so you have all these interminable debates about the source of rights or what rights we should have or what rights the government or the state or the law should enforce. Um, and it's based upon practical, pragmatic, utilitarian, consequentialist um, considerations on the one hand and justice and rights and God's law or whatever on the other. This is sort of how the debate shakes out, and surprisingly, it usually works out in the same direction, and I think that's because human nature is part of nature, and uh, we're unified. And so even if you start from this – like if you if, if a bunch of people feeling an elephant, right? Some feel the tail, some feel the feet, some feel the snout. They might think it's a different thing at first, but eventually they have enough empirical evidence to piece together they're feeling the same elephant. I, I think it's sort of like that, but I'm not a philosopher, so I don't claim to have any special knowledge on that. But Immanuel Kant came along. And he sort of – sort of like Einstein did to philosophy uh, – I'm sorry, to, uh, to science with, with Newton and uh, – uh, who's the evolution guy? Uh, Darwin, Darwin. Darwin. Darwin, Darwin you know, put, a, put a stick in the spokes of religion with, with evolution and natural selection. Um, so I think that the same thing sort of happened with uh, – who was I going with before? Darwin? Uh, it's something about evolution and God. Einstein, I don't know. Science, Manuel Kant revolutionized something. Oh, Kant, Kant, Kant. So, yeah, so Kant sort of um, came up with this, 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 this notion that it still uh, infects us today. Or, or it's 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 a way of looking at morality and 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 the sensible world in different realms, right? So um, now the only reason I mention that is because I think what happened was uh, Kant, um, the aspects of his thought, and Kant is of course hard to discern because he's he was trying to figure things out. He was standing on the shoulders of the giants. But so Mises, who's the Austrian godfather or the Austrian great father, what do you call him? The you know, the great guy of the Austrian movement, um, took Kant or parts of Kant to come up with his uh, Austrian view of uh, of the world. So we view the world in at least two realms. We understand phenomena that we witness and experience in two realms. So there's the there's the teleological realm of human purpose and human action, and then there's the the causal realm where we try to understand the physical laws that govern the universe. And in Kant, you could analogize this to aspects of his philosophy. But Mises was really a realist, but he basically said, "Listen, if we want to understand." 
how a pendulum works or a, a steam engine works, you have to use the scientific method and do empirical studies. But if you want to understand how humans works, which is basically economics and other other sciences, you have to think in terms of acting beings that have purposes and choice and that pursue ends and goals and means. This is what praxeology is all about, right? Um, and so uh, – but Mises restricted himself because he was humble, and like uh, – yeah, he was humble, and he did he, – he basically thought you can't make a science out of ethics. It's basically boiling down human subjective preferences to what they want, but he sort of took for granted that most of us want peace and prosperity and these basic values or these grand norms that we all share. So Hoppe comes along, and Hoppe's a student of Mises and of Rothbard, who is a student of Mises. And Hoppe is also a Kantian German philosopher. So he sort of synthesizes all these things, and he thinks, well, there's a problem with the consequentialist or utilitarian perspective on how we determine laws and rights and norms that we should have, and there's lots of problems I could go into, um, one of which is the whole Austrian um, criticism of, uh, of, uh, of objective value. Like you can't have – you can't compare values between people, and you can't measure them in cardinal terms. So value is subjective and interpersonal. Okay, so you, there's no way you could have a utilitarian apparatus that would sum up and maximize value. That's one criticism of utilitarianism. Uh, another is that um, there's no way to get the data, and another would be that that's not even moral anyway because why is it good to take half of Bill Gates's fortune and give it to a million you know poor kids? I, you know, there's no way to know that one's better than the other. So there's lots of problems with the utilitarian approach. That's why I think Mises' approach really was what I would call consequentialist, not utilitarian. So it was a broader – utilitarian is one application of that, uh, of consequentialism. Consequentialism just means you care about the consequences of the laws or policies you have in practice in which we all care about because that's the only reason to care about a bad law. Like if the drug law didn't cause anyone to be arrested, none of us would care. Right? We're opposed to the drug law, the drug war. Because it actually results in people going to prison for 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 uh, selling or using drugs or possessing drugs, right? Uh, if the law was like a totally uh, neutered law that had no effect, we we would we, I would be happy to have a fifty percent tax law that I didn't have to pay. I would just let them run around saying we have taxes, but that's fine. The only reason we care is because of consequences of, of bad laws. So we have to keep that in mind. So consequentialism is not bad. Utilitarianism is methodologically flawed. Okay. So the other argument would be more of a natural law, natural rights, teleological, or what we call deontological argument about rights, desert, justice, that kind of thing. What's the nature of humans? What do they deserve? Now, as Hoppe points out, there are certain problems with that argument too, and one of them is that… Um, human nature is very vague and diffuse, and um, some people uh, – I mean I, I don't want to be a cultural relativist, but there are different practices and 
ways of living in different societies throughout time and around the world even today. And there's just no way to say one's objectively superior to the other. Um, and so human nature only provides a very, very at, at best rough guide to what the law should be. So what Hoppe pointed out, and this is the essence of argumentation ethics, which I'm slowly building up to, is that he pointed out, let's stop and think what we're doing. Anytime people that are civilized enough to have come together to ask this question, like what should we do in this case when there's a, dis a dispute between A and B, they both want… They both want control of a given resource, and by the way, this is what every dispute is always about. It's always at least two people, A and B, and they both want the control of a resource, which is a scarce resource. If it wasn't scarce, they wouldn't need to compete over it. They could both have it right, like an idea or information. So it's always a scarce resource and always something that they both want control of, and they're both appealing to some tribunal or they're subject to some tribunal or some kind of forum. Where the question is which one should get it because only one can get it, and that's the nature of scarce resources. It's why we have property rights. So the rules are, as I said before, who got it first, who gave it to someone else by contract. Those are the basic rules. So you ask those questions. You get some evidence. You find out the answer. You give it to the guy who's got the best claim. That's the end of the story, right? But the question is what's the justification for all this? And the point is that Hopper recognizes that when you have this kind of situation, you, you already have people in the forum, in the decision tribunal, the contestants themselves. They're all appealing to some common core set of values that they share, at, at least the values that make the very uh, forum or argumentation possible. Which is basically say peace. Let's just say peace. Because, you know, if I want your cow, I can come take it from you and kill you. Just use force. We can have a brute battle of force. But if I want to resolve it in front of a group of people who are my peers and give reasons for why I deserve the cow instead of this other guy, I give reasons and I'm willing to. Advanced reasons and have a communication with the other guy and with the interlocutors um, and accept the judgment of the uh, uh, of whatever is decided. Um, so that is submission to a process of reason, and it's also admitting that I value peace and cooperation and dispute resolution. These all these combined values, and so does the other guy. So we all admit that we value these things. Um, we're, we're not doing the rule of, uh, of might over right, right? Um, and so once you admit these – it doesn't matter what you admit. As long as it's one or two core things, as long as there's some little norm that you have to admit to engage in the process, then logic and reason and evidence and the common sense of your peers can – Build upon those things that we all agree on and result in higher level uh, rules and applications, um, and this is where I would think rights come from. This is what argumentation ethics is about. It's basically saying that it's recognizing that in any dispute, the, the participants 
always necessarily recognize together certain norms, and then they can't disagree with on pain of contradiction. They can't disagree with higher level norms that uh, are compatible with those more fundamental norms. So that is sort of a, a high level um, sketch of what argumentation ethics is. Um, as for the details, there's more details, and we can go into that. Um, and by the way, this is Hoppe's theory, uh, not mine, but it, it did impress me uh, when I was a young libertarian, budding libertarian. Hmm. Yeah, I. It, it's, you know, I, I look at, um, you know, the, you know, the little bit that I had known about argumentation ethics, you know, as I looked at it it didn't make sense to me why people were trying to argue against it because as I was looking at it, it seemed it, it reminded me of uh, a lot of the arguments that Rothbard was making about natural law. I mean, can you elaborate? What do you mean? Um, trying to remember it's been a while since i since i read since i read it so well well let, let, let me say this so rothbard rothbard was okay rothbard was basically a old right liberal libertarian type mm -hmm. he uh i want to say glommed on glommed onto is the wrong word he uh was uh, he learned from Mises uh, some of the uh, Austrian approach to economics. He also was attracted to Ayn Rand and her neo-Aristotelian uh, natural rights type philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. It's all free market, all kind of pro-American, pro-free market, pro-capitalist, uh, pro-individualist stuff. Um. But Rothbard, when he – so Hoppe came over here in the 80s. Now, Rothbard died in 1995. Hoppe came here in 1985, so 10 years before. Hans Hoppe was a young, brilliant German student who was young, earlier a leftist socialist who was smart enough and honest enough to dismiss all that stuff when he saw how, how much bullshit it is, and he started – he started in actually, actually Hoppe started inventing praxeology, which is Mises's method, on his own. And then halfway through this process, as a young grad student, he stumbled across Mises, and he realized, oh, holy, holy shit, someone's already done this, right? So that's what happened. So he says, oh my god, Mises has already done this. No, at this point, Mises was dead. Mises died in '73. So in '85. So he discovers Rothbard, whose Mises is basically kind of heir apparent in a way of the praxeological sense. So he comes to the U.S. So for the last 10 years of his life, he was with Rothbard. So he's with Rothbard from 85 to 95. Rothbard died in 95. And Rothbard was – had in, been influenced a lot by Ayn Rand, more than he admits in public, which is one reason the Randians hate him because – he didn't have the right footnotes or something like that. You know, it's all bullshit. But <laughs> so Hoppe comes up with this kind of new synthesized Kantian 
influenced, Mises influenced, um, but also Rothbardian influenced uh, theory of rights, argumentation ethics. And uh, Rothbard immediately said, oh, you're right. This is the greatest thing since, you know, since sliced bread and praise the high heavens. Um, but what was interesting was – so the, the criticism that Hoppe makes, which I tend to agree with. So there's two criticisms of the, say, Aristotelian, Randian, even Rothbardian theory of rights. Okay, one is this natural rights idea that, that human nature is too vague to give you much substance to you know you can't tell people what the right way to live life is because human life morphs over time and it can be diverse, which I, I actually believe is true. I don't I don't really think you can tell people like the nuclear family is the way to go. Maybe it is right now, you know, whatever. Uh, uh, you have to be heterosexual, straight you have to like Elvis Presley, but not Madonna. You know, whatever. <laughs> that's all fine. Yeah. So that's one reasonable. So the criticism is that you can only get a little bit out of natural law. Like, but even if you could get a little bit out of it, that would be something. Like, you shouldn't murder people. Okay, that would be something. Or you shouldn't steal people, or you shouldn't take their property. Uh, uh, but the other criticism is more of a philosophical criticism, and it's the, it's the David Hume criticism, and it's, it's the idea that you can't get an is from an oh, – sorry, you can't get an ought from an is. So you – in other words, and this is where the, the Mises understanding of science, and science as a general term, comes in. So Mises understands human knowledge as – he calls it dualistic, means two, 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 two aspects, two realms of reality. So – as humans, we need to understand things about the world to survive, and as we get more systematic and we have society and we have accumulation of knowledge, we understand things more systematically. We have different sciences, different disciplines, different specialties, and the, the two main divisions are studying two different realms of phenomena. Okay, One is the causal world, which is the world of facts and contingent truths and matter and physical laws, which is what, what most people call science, what Mises would call the natural sciences. Right? In other words, you study – we try to figure out gravity and all the chemical laws and atomic laws and laws of physics, partly by doing deductive uh, reasoning and partly by doing experiments that are repeatable and also by observation. Right? So this is all empirical evidence. This is the study of the causal world, the world of causal phenomena, causal phenomenon. In other words, we believe in a world of cause and effect. We just don't know what the, the causes are, and we refine our knowledge of them over time by the process of human progress in science and transmission of knowledge and learning, etc. Right? This is all this is all good. But the other realm of knowledge has to do with human beings because we are special things in this world. And we act in different ways than, than our cars and our atoms because we have purposes, and we know we have purposes because we all are actors, and we all have our own purposes, and we are smart. Yeah, hello? Yeah. And so this is what teleology is about, and this is what human action or 
praxeology or economics studies the implicate or even aspects of philosophy and psychology and sociology they study the implications of the fact that humans act and have purposes so this is this dualistic method of Mises. And by the way, the best the best thing to read on all of this, I mean, there's lots of things, but anyone who's interested, if you don't something too, I won't say it's not high level, but it's not too it's not too long at least. It's the last book um, that Mises wrote. I think he was in his nineties. Uh, it was incredible. It was like the culmination. It was called the ultimate foundation of economic science. And that book like lays out this dualistic approach and now again Mises was a in ethics he was sort of utilitarian but he was a classical old world liberal with some radical tendencies but I think that that sort of approach is what Hoppe used um, to stop and say how do we figure out what norms people really do or should favor or that could be justified and so he recognized that the only way to justify a norm, and by norm I mean like a rule that you're, you're proposing as a solution to some problem among a group of people. Okay, That's what a norm is. Um, you have to give a reason for it, and because of the is-ought gap, which Hume has noticed, right? you can't go from this one realm of causal knowledge or facts to the other of oughts and norms and shoulds you can't it's logically unbridgeable which i agree with i actually think it's, it is logically unbridgeable um and that's the ultimate problem with rothbard's and rand's and in uh, aristotle's natural law approaches they try to go from 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 is to ought they try to say because man is this way therefore he should do this and the problem is as hume noted you always insert a should like a should is just somewhere inserted in this in this chain of reasoning, and that's where the, the, the defect is. But what Hoppe noticed is that when you're arguing with people, you already have a, common shared, a commonly shared set of values or shoulds or norms. So, so you don't need to say because man is this way, um, he should do this. What you say instead is because you and I both agree already… On peace and cooperation and prosperity of the human race, for example, as a shared goal. Therefore, if you know a little bit about economics and, and history and society and logic, then you should favor the free market and higher level individual libertarian rights and property rights and all that kind of stuff. In other words, they follow from these things that we share already. So you're going from a from an ought to an ought. You're not going from an is to an ought, which would violate the Humean. Um, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'll stop there and let you guys catch your breath. Okay, that was a lot. <laughs> well, well, I mean, I the reason uh, I mean, I I forgot um, mainly uh, what uh, the, what connections I was making as I was reading stuff, and usually that's what I do when I read stuff. You know, I make a whole bunch of connections, and sometimes I would write it down. So this probably should have been one of those times where I should have wrote it down so that way I would remember because yeah this is a lot to take in I mean wow yeah yeah I mean there's you know we I've I've uh 
Well, well, let, let me let me give you let me let, 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 let me put my video back on. Um, let me give you guys one piece of uh, let me let me uh, go go back down to earth a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. think about it this way: when I hear people criticize Papa's argumentation ethics, like libertarians, um, they'll say, "Well." You could argue for this, but then later on you could change your mind or something like you know. They come up with these kind of – or like maybe God really owns us all. Like they come up with these cute arguments. But I stop and wonder like, well, first of all, you're, you're a fellow libertarian. You, you, you admit that you agree with – we all agree on the basic ideas, and not even that. We agree on the, on the, on the higher-level ideas. Like we all agree that – with the non-aggression principle or something like that. So we agree on that. We all favor it. We agree with it, and I think that they would have to agree with, say, me or Hoppe on the criticisms of the conventional uh, justifications, for, like uh, like the utility, like the utilitarian justification is full of holes, and the natural law argument is full of holes. So they can't rely on either one of those. So. Basically, what they're, here's what they're saying to me. This is what I've always gotten from this, and I've never gotten a good answer from any of these people. They always slink off. They'll say something like, well, yeah, I agree with you on the non-aggression principle and on property rights. You're probably right that utilitarianism is not a good justification, and you're probably right that the, you, can't get, you, can't, uh, you can't bridge the is-ought dichotomy or gap. Um, so basically I have no reason for believing in what I'm saying I'm believing in, but I don't like the reason you're giving. So that's what the so what they're saying is they have no reason for individual rights or libertarianism, but they don't like someone pretending to have a right a reason. Mm -hmm. Now, if that's yeah. your basic criticism of Hoppe, that is like the weakest criticism you can have. It's like, well, okay, so let's say Hoppe pretends to have an argument which is flawed. What's wrong with – okay, so what's wrong with doing that? Because that's no worse than having no argument, which is what you basically are admitting that you have. So – and not only that, what Hoppe ultimately says is that you cannot come up with an argument for socialism, and by socialism I mean in a broad sense of meaning any ethic, any law… That contradicts the non-aggression principle. Okay, so basically, socialism means any institutionalized interference with private property rights or, or non-aggression principle. So when Hoppe says, "I I'm simply pointing out that it's impossible to justify socialism," now libertarians apparently actually believe this because they're libertarians. So they don't they don't think socialism is justified. Now they might not be able to explain why they don't think it's justified, but they actually agree that socialism is not justified. And that's what Hoppe's argument is. He's saying that you you cannot justify socialism. Now, if you have some libertarian out there who says, Well, I happen to be a libertarian today, but uh who knows, maybe in five years someone will Finally, come up with an argument that would justify Marxism or whatever. Okay, I don't know if that's my best kind of favorite libertarian friend, but I don't really hear that that much. That's not even it. They just don't like the fact that someone 
is arrogant enough to claim that they've sort of shown you why you believe what you already believe. Like if you tell a socialist what we're saying, I can understand them getting upset because it would it would derail their plans for socialized medicine and you know basic guaranteed income and all this kind of stuff. The Green New Deal. Yeah. But why would a libertarian be upset that we're just saying, yeah, you're actually right. Your non-aggression principle ideas are right, and they have to be right. But they're upset that Hoppe says it. Honestly, I think it's partly because he's German. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know what else to tell you. I hate to psychologize, but I do it anyway. All right, enough ranting and raving for a second. Yeah. I mean, it, it's – yeah, and, uh, there, there's there's uh, one thing that um, really annoys me is that you know you know Hoppe's you know when it comes to property rights you know he's he's saying you know uh, my understanding of what he was saying is that uh, you know you have you can freely associate uh, with who, whomever and if you don't want to you can. Have them removed from your property, your, you know, your, oh. your home, your castle, your turf, your own property. And yet, what I really hate is when people try to twist it around, saying, uh, "Where you know they're trying to make it sound like that he's saying that you know society as a whole, you know, he's advocating that's what we should be doing." And I'm, well, yeah, that's and that's a whole. That's a whole different argument. That almost has like literally nothing to do with argumentation ethics. So argumentation well, ethics was more of the theory he came up with in like 1984, 85, 93 um, to justify his take on basically the libertarian um, non-aggression principle. Um, what you're talking about is more of his later work on immigration and democracy, right? Where he talks about it's more of a social, social, socio-cultural analysis, um, and people can disagree on whether that's compatible with um, the core libertarian norms that we all basically agree with. Which so his argumentation ethics is just trying to come up with a defense, a philosophical defense of the core libertarian norms. Um, the stuff you're talking about that is more controversial and got him into more – I won't say trouble, but um, generated more controversy was the more later stuff about um, – however, you'll notice that he cited and quoted Rothbard, and Rothbard himself, who was also the subject of some kind of this, um, this paleo uh, controversy. Uh, even Rothbard himself said that, look, in a free society, in a future society, in a libertarian future order, you would have – he. I think he calls it a gorgeous mosaic of neighborhoods. You could imagine like a, a, a big diversity of – like you might have – I don't know. I will say a kibbutz, but you know, a, a black neighborhood here, a, a gay neighborhood here, a more San Francisco-type thing here, a more conservative Kansas community here. Um, but they would all do it based upon a general private property assumption, and they would trade with each other and get along. But people would tend to – or they might tend to segregate into different uh, voluntary um, covenant communities or regimes. Um, it's hard to it's hard to argue 
that that would happen to some degree in any society that people are going to tend to segregate uh, according to some criteria, whether it's uh, status or ethnicity or religion or um, nationality or whatever, or race. I don't know. Um, my, my personal view is – my personal hope would be that over time all these things become um, – less and less relevant and we become a truly uh i mean i'm i don't know if i'm like cop and i mean this is just me kinsella talking here i i want a future society where all this stuff is uh is irrelevant or incidental uh, um and i think we could move that way towards a, a cosmopolitan you know less tribalistic society but right now things are getting worse because the state is there and everyone's fighting for turf battle battles over their piece of the pie and their control over the levers of the state to control each other else right to control the other guys i mean i i, I meant to uh make sense yeah i mean yeah. i i just i i probably should have meant i probably should have said in the beginning you know kind of shift gears you know that's why i was you know I thought we were kind of done with argumentation ethics, so I thought, you know, kind of shift gears a little. Well, by its nature, you're never done with argumentation ethics. <laughs> yeah. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah. So there's always an argument. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, a never-ending uh, cycle. Seems like. You kind of and that's the, another that's another interesting point, which uh, I, I don't know if I'm equipped to talk about. But yeah, the whole the whole idea of um, um, continually renewing and replenishing our knowledge of everything: uh, scientific knowledge, causal knowledge, uh, factual knowledge, historical knowledge, um, social conventions. I, I think that's part of the process of life, right? Uh, the human race, if it's going to keep going on. Not to be racist, but you know, to mention right. race, um, is going to have to keep replenishing knowledge somehow, and that means every generation has to. I mean, even Jefferson noticed this, right? When he said every twenty years you have to renew the tree of liberty, he he had this idea in mind that every generation has to sort of create its own destiny, um, and I think every generation now has to borrow from the inheritance of our forebears. Which is all the knowledge we've gotten transmitted to us, um, not just causal and factual knowledge, but but moral knowledge and cultural knowledge, and traditions and things like that. Um, which is one reason I'm against intellectual property. Which is not this always comes up. You can't talk to Kinsella about IP coming up, but yeah, even copyright and patent somehow impede the, the advancement of the human race. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. Um, there actually was a one thing that I just remembered, um, and I asked Walter Block this, uh, you know, quite a while ago actually. Um, and this is probably uh, probably one thing that uh, you know David Friedman had argued, and that was uh, I I don't know if you've heard of the uh, flagpole analogy, you know as an argument against the, the non-aggression principle. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was wondering, yeah. Oh, what are your thoughts on that? 
Um, so I would, well, David Friedman is a big influence of mine. Um, I don't agree nowadays with lots of um, his thought, um, although I think on libertarianism we're mostly sympathetic. Um, his approach is his approach is not principled, and it's not systematic, and it's unfortunately too dilettantish. Um, like David Friedman, who's I mean, look, he he was one of the three or four or five guys that helped persuade me to become an anarchist. Um, but even he is not against copyright and patent. So. And I know so much about this topic now. This is just one topic, but it's an important topic. And if 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 you're going to be a top libertarian thinker, and you can't even get that issue right, then there's some big, big, big gap in your thinking. And who knows where else it's going to uh, mislead you. Um, but I think what he's talking about there. So he does this thing where he. So in law, we call this legal positivism. Okay, Legal positivism is this idea that laws can only come from the, from the ruler. Okay? I'll connect it up, Your Honor, in a second. Trust me. Um, uh, an authoritative ruler, and most people are statists, and so they think that's a state, right? And we we don't we don't believe that, but we think of law as something that someone issues and emanates by legislation or decree, um, you know, or or whatever. And so, like, there's an aspect of Rothbard even that I would agree with that's compatible with Friedman. Like, so, like this Rothbard idea that you could have a gorgeous and, and Hoppe too, who agrees with this. Um, a gorgeous mosaic of diverse neighborhoods. Now, I don't mean neighborhoods. I mean jurisdictions like city-states or regions or covenant communities, whatever. Um, so what I think Friedman is opposing is he's thinking like the anarcho-capitalist Rothbardian imagines you have to have the nuclear family, and it's going to be enforced by private law somehow, and… Has to be capitalist, like uh, in the conventional modern model, and all these left libertarians and these loosey goosey libertarians are thinking, well, you could have kibbutzes and hippie communes and and, and co-op worker co-ops and blah 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 blah, blah. and they're right. But Rothbard, of course, says that when he says you can have a, a gorgeous mosaic, you might have to have this or this or that. Um, but if you take that too far, then you start thinking there's no such thing as law. Like, it's basically like, what's the law? Like, so he's saying like, uh, you you might have a libertarian world that's not libertarian. I think that's basically what he says. Like, so you could have a world where people are somehow I don't know how, but somehow free to determine their own local destiny, but they choose a kibbutz, let's say, or a commune. Or a worker's paradise or, or some kind of worker co-op thing, um, and that, that wouldn't be libertarian or capitalist or whatever. That is not how I look at it. Um, now, coming to your question, um, 
there are cases in ethics and in political philosophy of what we call – what Ayn Rand called uh, lifeboat situations or emergencies. And I think actually roughly the way Ayn Rand dealt with them is roughly the right way. Like she dismissed them as not the key issue. Um, so here's the way I look at it. So let's suppose you have two guys stranded after a light, after a ship uh, sunk on the ocean, and they're trapped in a life raft. And these two guys are sit, sitting there starving to death on a life raft, and they eventually, I don't know, have to fight each other or, you know, survival of the fittest, whatever. It, it gets it gets nasty. Now, the thing is. People trot out examples like this, lifeboat examples, I call them, or emergency situations, which was what you brought up. Um, they trot them out to show that capitalism or the libertarian ethic is not perfect or can't solve every problem. Okay, that's fine. It's true. Uh, we never claimed it would. Libertarianism is not designed to solve every problem, and it, it probably won't. But – that's not the purpose, and that's not and, – and, and consider what we're competing against. So let's suppose we have a world of, of George Orwell's socialism or communism or Marxism or fascism or a world where all the Germans have wiped out everyone except for white Aryan Germans, and all the blacks are dead. All the Indians are dead. You know, Like there's only white Germans left. Okay, fine. You still might have a lifeboat situation where two guys are on a boat, and they're both screwed. Unless one of them eats the other one. How does the fact that there's socialism or fascism or democracy or whatever somewhere, how does that change that problem? This is the problem of the way the world works. It's scarcity. It's the way that reality works. There will be sometimes be conflict. There will sometimes be hardship, sometimes be loss. Sometimes there will be uh, horrible situations where there's no good solution. So the question is not should we have capitalism or libertarianism even though it can't solve every problem you can imagine, but the question is what is a superior system? What's the moral system? Right? And as Ayn Rand said, you can't let like these edge gray area lifeboat tragedy situations define the morality we need to come up with, the interpolitical rules that let normal people live together in peace and prosperity in decent normal times. Right? If, if society breaks down and we have anarchy and chaos and death and misery and destruction, that's not – I don't think anyone thinks that's good. But it's not because we had an ideal at one point of having an – a way of living together in civilized peace when, as the phrase goes, when peace was possible. You know, Peace has to be possible for peace to be possible, but when peace is possible, we can achieve great things. If we're not at each other's throats and we want to cooperate and interact with each other and benefit from each other and have freedom of you know, trade… Division of labor and benefit from living in community with other humans, it's called society, then 
we're all better off, and that's why we still live today. That's why society has been around for at least modern society in some sense thousands of years. This is a good thing about humanity, and it's, it's because we do have an empathic element um, in our nature. Um, we have empathy with, for each other. In other words, each one of us, except for the sociopaths and psychopaths among us, we value the well-being of our fellow men. Yeah, you can value yourself more. You can value your family more. That's fine. But we trade with each other. We smile and greet each other. We trade. We benefit from being amongst each other. We don't. Most of us don't want to be hermits living alone on an island, and we couldn't do it anyway. Um, so this requires us to have some reflection about our nature as beings that need to have rules that govern how we live among each other and use these scarce resources because the other – otherwise, you're always at the peril of some other human being taking your stuff or invading your plans or ruining your plans, and thus you can't have long-term plans. You can have a factory. You can't homestead land and use it for this or buy it or count on um, uh, – uh, you know, uh, your loans being paid off, or vice versa, or getting a loan in the first place. All this stuff requires an accumulation of, uh, 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 of a societal legal system that allows us to live among each other um, and benefit from each other's existence, right? Um, end of I soliloquy. Um, I uh, just mentioned uh, in the group chat uh, while Stefan was talking, if uh, uh, you, if Night Shift or Zach, you guys have any questions you want to ask, uh, feel free. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to take up the uh, entire conversation. No, no, no. This is this is pretty great. I'm loving this. Hmm. Well, that's my job to take up the whole conversation. To uh, that's what I always do. I always monopolize things. Sorry about that, guys. <laughs> no, you're, uh, no, this uh, is all great. This is all great. <laughs> it is honestly. Oh God! When I do this around my wife and kids, they're like, "Stop lecturing at us." They <laughs> <laughs> just want to do whatever they're doing. <laughs> yeah. It's like God. I just wanted to know what what to watch on TV next, and now I get a lecture about Austrian economics. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my sister asked me how much she should charge her commissions and i started talking about supply and demand she's like no just tell me the dollar amount i don't want the justification it's it's funny how some people yeah some people just i, I used to have like when I, i'm not going to mention names or dates because but a long time ago i was at a law firm i had a secretary i don't have uh, any more i don't have you don't need them anymore things have changed but i had the secretary and i tried to explain to her what we were doing so she could handle the stuff more efficiently and she her eyes would glaze over she she goes i don't want it to do she no she i don't know want to know i don't want to i don't want to know why just tell me what to do i'm like all right put this in the fedex package and you know do a b and c like they want road instructions sometimes it's crazy but that's the way it is people have different interests yeah um 
yeah so uh there's one uh, yeah so a little kind of like going back a little bit uh to um you know property rights you know what hoffa was arguing i have often uh gotten into arguments with those who support open borders um you know as we talk on you know when i talk about property rights uh, i have run into some who have who have actually who would actually admit that you know they're not they would actually disagree with uh, preserving it and you know i find that to be quite a lot preserving preserving what open borders no property rights you know basically they they want they want um they basically want to get it by force and i'm trying to point out to them you can't do it by force you know it, it, you know that it's kind of like the same th it, it's probably it's almost similar to the same arguments i would have with those who support closed borders except uh, you know there's you know it isn't just a matter of property rights but also freedom of association you know and and what what bothers me is they often confuse you know say public squares with uh private property i mean i've done a few shows about it but well i'll i'll give you my kind of take i mean first of all again this is another uh later controversy of Hoppe about application of ideas, not um, in, um, uh, and it would take a long time to go through the whole um, libertarian debate over immigration surround, uh, surrounding the Hoppe approach. But in summary, it's almost like his monarchy views, like People accuse him of being a monarchist. He's not a monarchist. He just pointed out that the assumption that the move from a general Western liberal tradition of monarchistic societies in the early 1900s around World War One to a more democratic system wasn't necessarily a progress. That's, that was his main point. Like there are some disadvantages to democracy over monarchy, which I totally agree with him. Um, whether, But he's not a monarchist, and neither am I. We're all anarchists. Uh, we're anarcho-libertarians here. Um, on the immigration issue, the issue is complicated for lots of libertarians but for lots of reasons. Right? Uh, first of all, not all libertarians are anarchists. A lot of libertarians are minarchists, and there are a few who – seem to be anti-immigration controls even though they're anarchists like say Jacob Hornberger who was running for president and somehow lost to Joe Jorgensen who no one's ever heard I mean, whatever um, uh, but most minarchists in my view have very little grounds to stand on to oppose immig some immigration controls because they believe in states right so once you believe in a state you're done. You're going to have immigration controls, especially a modern state with democracy and then the ensuing welfare benefits and all this kind of stuff. Uh, you're going to have immigration controls. So I don't really understand even the minarchist opposition to immigration controls. Um, you could make an argument about how – like in the US, for example, like what the immigration quotas should be 
what the standard should be, but I don't see how you can be for open borders and for democracy and the Constitution and uh, a so-called minimal state, which is not a minimal state anymore. I don't, I, these things don't go together. The anarchist approach to immigration um, is more interesting, I think, because um, as Hoppe points out, there's no such thing as immigration in an anarchist world because it's just private property plots of land, and there's – I mean immigration makes no sense. There's no citizenship. There's no states. There's no nationhood. There's no borders. Uh, everyone gets to invite or not invite people. So I think what he's doing there is similar to what he does with his monarchy stuff where he says that, look, don't assume that democracy was a great move in progress, incrementally in progress from monarchy to democracy in 1917 or whenever. Um, it might have been uh, retro, 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 what it was the opposite of prior, retrogress or retrograde. It might have been a backwards move. Um, um, but uh, so immigration – look, personally, I, I, I'm, in, I'm torn by this one. This is like the free will debate for me. It's a difficult issue. Um, you don't want to support the INS, right, the goons at the borders, the federal government. You don't want to support them as a libertarian. On the other hand, as a practical matter, I think that if the U.S. had no borders tomorrow, like imagine Japan or, or Switzerland or Israel. Imagine Israel tomorrow had no borders or Switzerland. Uh, you, can, you can be a principled libertarian and say, okay, they shouldn't have any borders, but as a practical matter, it's hard for me to imagine, and I'm not a historian… I'm just from my common sense armchair. I think that th these countries would be ended as we know them now within 10 years, five years, 20 years, something like that. Japan would be done. Switzerland would be gone. Israel would be gone for sure, Israel. So, if you, uh, this is just a practical measure. So, if you believe that Israel is like a little tiny quasi island of liberty in the middle of of Arabia and Switzerland and uh, you know Japan are somewhat liberal in the good sense oases in a, in a sea of statist nations if they lowered their borders and they had hundreds of millions of immigrants eventually it would just be ended now this might be my 20th century conservative thinking and I'm not open-minded enough, blah, blah, blah. But really, do we need to like play Russian roulette with all of them all the time, every time for the sake of some PC altar? So I can't favor the INS, but I also commiserate with libertarians or quasi-libertarians who say things like, okay, I'll consider open borders when we get rid of uh, Democracy and birthright citizenship and welfare. Yeah, and then I would favor it because, yeah, all the arguments conservatives use against immigration are usually wrong. Yeah, they're against competition and 
putting people out of work and transitioning the economy to blah, blah, blah. Yeah, most of those are wrong. Generally, more population is better. Generally, immigrants have lots to offer. But do we really want a billion or two billion more people to descend like a locust horde tomorrow on the U.S. if we open the borders so they can get Obamacare? And I, I, I just can't see a good consequence for liberty in the medium, even in the medium term if we did that. On the other hand, I can't support the INS stopping them. So it's to me, it's a this is one of the hardest libertarian dilemmas. What do you guys think? Um, um uh, yeah, I, I would definitely say that it's more situational than anything. Like, yeah, if we dropped our borders and we just started letting people in, more than likely a, a good, a fair amount of them would latch on to the welfare state. They would latch on to uh, government support. It would drive up taxes, drive up regulations, and it would make things just absolutely terrible. However, on the other hand, if um, if we got rid of all that, if we got, I mean, as you were saying, if we got rid of all that, if we got rid of welfare, if we got rid of the democratic process, if we got rid of all that crap, all the government assistance, and then essentially kind of privatized the national borders, made it so that um, the only way you could come here and still have it be feasible for you is you have to work, you have to produce, you have to do something that actually yeah. um, is productive for society. That's the only way that you're, you're, that you're potentially going to make it unless you're rich and you just want to move here because you're like the setting. Um, um, then, yeah, that would actually be pretty awesome um, to drop the borders in that situation um, and yeah. just have it be so like, you know, I mean, the only way that the only way that anyone can get here is to contribute. So, I mean, yeah, it, I, I would say it's situational. It's more situational than anything. It's like, you know, in our current situation, yeah, it'd be pretty horrible. But in a situation where you get rid of the government and then you privatize both national borders or whatever, whatever you would call um, a national border and also private property borders, um, then it it would be pretty dang awesome to see that go through. And it would probably give you a big, um, a big commerce and economic boost in the long run. So yeah, again, my, my response is that it's very situational and um, it, it would depend on the situation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, the, 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 the big, I mean, of course, really the only way to stop it is to have a wall or something like Trump wants. And, that would require massive violations of private property rights through eminent domain mm -hmm. um, and taxation to pay th to pay these. By the way, which I think is unconstitutional because the federal the federal government is not given the power of eminent domain in the Constitution, as far as I can find. Um, so I don't even know how the federal government has the power to to seize property on the border to. Uh, to, to build the wall. Yeah, I mean, I mean, my the way I look at the way I uh, I'm arguing about borders is I kind of see like you know the fence or the wall around your house or your neighbor's house, which you all agree to is the only legitimate borders, essentially. Yeah, but that's not going to build a national wall. You're going to uh, basically the federal government is going to have to go in and expropriate hundreds of miles of private property in Texas and other states, and uh, 
ruin these guys' land and have to rob us to pay them and build a big, ugly wall, which won't work anyway, I believe, unfortunately. Um, so the only solution, I think, is to get rid of birthright citizenship and welfare. But, uh, you know, that's another – that's a political issue. That's not a building a wall issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean my I mean my, my only uh my only criticism pretty much about well I have several of course but when it comes to Trump's wall I I basically just see another Berlin wall you know essentially Yeah coming. of course I I totally agree because the, these walls are, are are touted as it's not just the wall itself but it's the, it's the system but they're touted as walls that prevent entry but um you can't really leave the country either unless number 1 you have a passport and number 2 you have a way back in right and with the covid restrictions across countries and with uh the government uh, the, the U.S. federal government at least being one of the worst in the world in terms of extraterritorial application of antitrust law and, and, and tax law and also having discretion over whether to grant you the right to – you know, like you have Roger Ver, the Bitcoin guy. Like he you know, sold a bunch of fireworks and got convicted and made money off – Bitcoin and got out of prison and renounced his citizenship and he moved to Japan. Okay, that's fine. I guess if I'm a billionaire and I want to move to Japan, I can do that and renounce my citizenship. But even th- even then, he told the story. I heard a podcast like he had to go to an embassy and request permission to do it, and it's discretionary. So the U.S. government doesn't even have to let you leave, and they do it now because it's only a small number of millionaires or billionaires who are doing this on occasion but if it becomes a mass exodus you know they're going to stop it they're going to trap you here using the visa process and the passport process and the export uh, the border controls process to control who comes in and out uh, multiplied by the covid crap and all uh, you know the border controls and all that so yeah these walls they're not just Entrance only gates. They're also they prevent exit. I think in the in the long run. Well, which and is, even um, which is horrible. Yeah. Well, I know. Sorry to cut you off, but I mean, um, they do kind of trap us here in a sense because if you look at international taxes and the way the United States has um, like an international taxation system. So, like, let's say, yeah, you Im- you immigrate out of the country. And you want to, you know, you want to go to another country. They'll still tax you, even though you're living you're living in that country through international taxes. So, I mean, in essence, they 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 still kind of trap us here, and that's the process they use to trap us. Yeah, that's what so, I meant by uh, yeah yeah yeah. That's what I meant by the extra tor- So, the U.S. is unique in its extra extraterritorial application of um, antitrust law and tax law. Um, so, yeah, so. Yeah, if you live in I don't know France or Germany, even though they have high taxes, if you move to I don't know, the Barbados or somewhere where there's no taxes, then okay, you get away with it. Now you have to change your locale and your friends and all that. It's a big cost, but at least you can do it. But in the U.S., if you're a citizen, you got to pay U.S. taxes as a base 
minimum no matter what. Um, like if you move to uh, Singapore, I don't know, let's say there's zero taxes. If you're American citizen, if you're Canadian, if you move there, I think you're basically tax free. This might be a bad example, but you know, t just to take it for an example. If you're an American, you move there, you still got to pay. Now, if you move to France and you're an American, then what you do is you pay. You have to pay America your taxes, and then France probably has higher taxes if you're a high-income individual. So you pay the extra to France. So you don't have to pay double taxes because there's tax treaties that prevent that. But you got to pay your minimum to the U.S. no matter where you live, even if you don't live there, reside there, work for an American company. And we're – I think we're only one of two countries in the world that does that. It's crazy. Um, but that's because we're so powerful so they can get away with it, right? So uh, – and they do that with antitrust law too, and also they're starting to do it with patent law and these other things, but especially antitrust law and uh, with tax law. But so the only choice would be to get rid of your citizenship, but that's a high cost, and you don't have the right to do that, even that. You have to do it with their permission. Hmm. And that's not what we want to do. I mean you have American libertarians saying you should move to New Hampshire. This is how they think. Um, I mean New Hampshire is just one state of 50. I don't really care whether New Hampshire has no sales tax and no income tax. I mean I'm in Texas. We have no income tax, but we do have income tax because it's called federal income tax. So hmm. – <laughs> There's no state income tax, but state income tax is always like a fifth or even less of the federal. So even if you move to a state that has no state income tax, you're still not getting rid of your federal income tax burden. And even if you move to Malta or wherever, you still have to pay federal income tax because you're a citizen. <clears throat> so all these little schemes, they don't work, and they don't work because… The feds, they're basically parasites, and they, they're like ticks. They suck blood from their victims. They want to cling on to them, and they've, they've harnessed us in certain webs, and it's enough for them to get by. Right? This is the pessimistic Kinsella coming up, or realistic Kinsella. I don't know. <laughs> Could be both. Yeah. So, all right. Um, unless uh, anybody else has uh, anything, anything or any other questions that they want to mention, uh, anything at all? Uh, no, I think we've addressed everything. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, um, I usually end the show with a weekly song, so uh, thought we we can go ahead and do that. So. Uh, Without further ado, time for the weekly song. Drum roll, please, everyone. <laughs> okay. So um, uh, last time uh, you were on, Stefan, I think uh, it was a song by Backwards uh, that I chose. Uh, <laughs> Eric July? Yeah, Eric July. <laughs> yes. I, I had him on not too long ago. It was, it was a lot of fun uh, having him on. So um, – so I thought that this time I choose a song by a very good friend of mine. He's a he's a anarchist hip hop rapper. He's known as Blooded the Brave, and so it's an old song of his. It's called Peacemaker. So he 
he's been uh he's been making uh music lately after being on hiatus i think so but but yeah he's yeah if you haven't if you haven't heard his music you should he's his he's got a really good message that he's spreading around so all right well uh i'll link that song in the sounds script. good yeah so i'll link that song in the description box you all can check it out in the weekly songs playlist um so uh stefan uh Thank you uh, so much for coming on once again. Uh, you know, it's always, uh, I always learn something new uh, every time I watch a lecture or a speech you give or even a Thanks, debate. guys. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for go- yeah. doing this. You guys are uh, you're working to spread ideas and liberty, so I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, always, always. So I want to thank you all for tuning in, and uh, please come back soon. <laughs>